Howdy, Sean. How you doing? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Great. Thanks for coming all the way from San Francisco. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me to come on your platform, come on your show, and uh, be able to you know tell my story and maybe provide some value to your listeners. Yeah, I love stories like yours. What What is your shirt? Nowhere to go but up. Can you explain that? Yeah, so this is the nonprofit that I started. Mm-hmm. It's actually Nowhere to Go But Up Incorporated. That's what it's the umbrella it's under. Mm-hmm. And then Nowhere to Go But Up Project is the um, basically what it's going to be. And I'm building out the uh, the board of directors right now for it. But it's going to be a living facility for uh, males specifically, 18 to 24 years old, that are coming out of incarceration and reentering into the uh, community. And so basically it's like a one-stop shop. It's like going to be a, a year to a year and a half with programming and also like everything that you would need to integrate back into society from, you know, skills to, you know, counseling to uh, job placement, job assistance, uh, resume building, all the stuff that you would need to kind of like seamlessly get into society, figure out how to become a man again and get your dignity back and then be able to move on either, you know, the successful ones could either come back and, and be teachers and work for the nonprofit itself or just move on and continue on with life. So what made you want to do all this? It sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but, um, my, the podcast, nowhere to go, but up, uh, and also like my journey it all started with, uh, you know, I'm part of that population. You know, I did time in federal and state prison, not long periods of time, but you know, enough to let me know that I don't want to go back there. Right. And so what I ended up doing was, um, you know, well, let's go back to the beginning. You know, my story is not one of those prison stories where I'm going to tell you about all the people that I saw stabbed or, you know, all the bad things that happened while I was there. I mean, to be honest with you, I did 18 months in the state of Nevada and then I did 18 months in in federal. And so that's literally, by the time you get there, you get comfortable. It's time to go to the next spot. So I didn't get a chance to do any of the programming and all the stuff that you should be able to do when you're there because you're there to be rehabilitated. So they say, right? None of that stuff happens. Um, There's no rehabilitation there. There may be for some guys that are there doing 10, 15, 20 years But a lot of that they do on their own. You know, they figure, okay, well, I've got enough time here. I don't like the person that I was, so let me figure it out. But the guy that usually has about five years and under, none of that stuff happens. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the behaviors that actually get you into prison never get dealt with. Yeah, I got, I, you know, got my body nice and, you know, I was able to, you know, do a, a hundred burpees with no problem and, you know, all the other stuff. But the toxic person that was inside there that got me to prison to begin with, none of those behaviors ever were able to change. And so when I got out, it was just a continuation of what got me there to begin with. Yeah, I did a couple of 
you know, stints of clean time and, and stuff like that. But let's go back a little bit further to what got me there. And a lot of that was I grew up in a, an abusive household. Um, my parents divorced when I was about five. And they used me as like a pawn in their, in their game, right? You know, they're, to get back at each other. So I was the, the, the tug of war piece. And so for me, that, uh, that was kind of like the trauma that I suffered when I was a kid that made me angry. And I couldn't control the situation. I couldn't control what was happening. You know, I'd go to my dad's every other weekend. And when I was there, uh, my grandparents and him, they would just talk horribly about my mom while I'm at the table. And so when I go back to my mom's, I think she's this horrible person. And so I just take it out on her. And she's the reason why I'm not able to see my dad as much as I want to. And so that just led to me being a super angry kid. Um, you know, I, I couldn't control my situation. So later on in life, I became a control freak, but I also got in so much trouble up until literally like I got kicked out of preschool, <laughs> like daycare. Like what, what kind of kid gets kicked out of daycare, right? Why'd you get kicked out of daycare? Um, there were some kids walking behind the daycare that I was at. I go to the elementary school that's over probably about half a mile away and there's a big, big field. There were some kids walking by, they were, you know, running their mouth and like, I'm, I'm in the third grade and I pick up a dirt clod and I, you know, I thought it was a dirt clod, but there was a rock in the middle of it and I throw it and it misses the person that I was trying to hit and hits a little girl right in her face. Oh, fuck. And uh, she starts bleeding and, you know, nothing that I was trying to do, but, you know, that's just kind of a lot of the things that happened to me. I would do stupid stuff and get in trouble for it because the thing, like something would happen that wasn't planned on happening, but just out of circumstance, I ended up being the one that gets in trouble. Uh, the first time I ever got in trouble with the law, same thing. I was, uh, what was I? I'd say I was a freshman in high school and I had over that summer, uh, I had slept with this chick and she was dating some guy that I guess was a gang member. He calls up my house, leaves a message on the answering machine, you know, the ones with the tape. <laughs> and mm -hmm. So I took the tape out, went to school and I was the kind of kid that like, I, I was a chameleon. I can hang out with the drama nerds. I can hang out with the mods. I can hang out with the stoners, the gangbangers. I can hang out with all of them. And I would, I would just bounce around. When you were a freshman in high school? Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. I know there's gang banging freshmen. Well, it's like, well, how old do you have to be to be a freshman in high school? Like 15 years old? Yeah, like 15, 14, 15. Damn, that's young. Where were you? Uh, in Pinole, California, which is near, in between Richmond and Rodeo and Hercules. Okay. So it's not really the, so all of the, so they would bust kids in from, from like the, the poorer neighborhoods to that high school. And so I, you know, they weren't like gangbangers in the way that you think of like, say bloods and crips and stuff like that, but any kind of, it's just a kids being a gang. Right. And so what I did was, is I had a couple of friends that were involved in that. And so at uh, lunchtime or not lunchtime, the first break I went down, I let them listen to the tape and they're like, Oh man, fuck that man. Let's We're going to go get them. Right. And so I was like, okay, cool. Let's go. Lunchtime came, and uh, sure enough, we got in the car, uh, went to the next the high school over, and by the time we got there, there was three carloads of guys. 
and we get out. We start walking down towards the uh, convenience store. I see her and him walking this way. She bolts. Um, he keeps walking. Everybody surrounds him. He starts to put his hand in his pocket, and somebody comes from behind me and hits him, and then he just pinballs and then makes his way to the convenience store. Two guys catch him at the store uh, front, start hitting him. They pick him up, and they throw him onto the counter, and they drag him across, knocking all the cash register and everything else off. He ends up getting the knife out of his pocket, which he was originally going for to begin with, and slashes one of my friends across the face, and it's all on camera. And I never touched the dude. And I ended up getting uh, charged with inciting a riot. And so that was my first sort of like inkling of getting into trouble in high school, right? My first trouble with the law. Not to mention, if we go back to junior high, I got expelled from my junior high for having a butterfly knife and playing with it and missing the pocket when the teacher came in and hit the floor and clank, clank, clank. And I ended up getting expelled from that school, went to my dad's, uh, flunked out of seventh grade, had to go to summer school, got kicked out of that school, went to my uncle's, uh, got kicked out of that school, went back to the school that kicked me out to begin with, and was um, ended up getting like suspended five times, got sent to the office like 37 times within half of the school year. Three weeks before my freshman year or the summer break, they called me in and they said, you know what, Mr. Clark, just go home. We're not suspending you. We're not doing anything. We're just, just go. We don't want you here anymore. We're socially promoting you to the ninth grade because you have straight Fs. (laughs) And basically it's like, dude, that's how my life was, right? Like I was constantly in trouble and then I was constantly doing things to reinforce me being a bad kid. And it just it just went and went and went, and the meth started when I was uh, well. It wasn't called meth back then. It was called crank. <laughs> this is escalating quickly. <laughs> yeah, it was called crank. It was a bur- dirty biker dope. Uh, it's really stinky, nasty stuff. But um, how old were you now? Uh, Fifteen, sixteen. Okay, and so I start doing that. Um, start getting in a lot of trouble, running away, not coming home. Uh, my mom ends up, uh, I think I go to juvenile hall once I did a, a, a 151, 151 days at the boys ranch, but my mom ended up giving me up as a ward of the court to the state because she couldn't control me. You know, I'm running away all the time. I'm not coming home, not sleeping, you know, being your mom has like custody of you. Well, she has physical custody of me, but she gives right. like control over me over to the state. Okay. And so now, if where's I, your dad during all this? You still seeing him or no? No, nah, not really. Okay. Like once I started getting in trouble, and after I left, uh, after I moved out from him, he just kind of like, oh, he's your problem now. I don't want to deal with it. And then we we were, you know, we talked every now and again, but you know, it just it wasn't. Uh, what ended up happening there is I had taken the uh i'd taken a bus up to sacramento when he wasn't there i didn't know he wasn't there i was going up there to see some chick and i go i go to his house he's not there i jump over the fence because i know how to get in because i was living there uh the neighbor sees me calls him up unbeknownst to me my grandmother's in the hospital dying in in the bay area he has to drive all the way up come get me um, because you know, he doesn't, for whatever reason he did, uh, on our way back down, my grandmother dies. Mm. And so 
that was a, a sore spot of contention with him because he blamed me for him him not being there when his when his mother died, which was my grandmother. So, you know, there's all these little things that, like, because of my decisions, they weren't, like, directly things I was trying to do, but things that indirectly happened because of what I was doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And so the meth starts, or, yeah, the, the crank starts, um, getting in a bunch of trouble, uh, incorrigible, all that stuff. Did the 151, um, ended up... Uh, What's the 151? 151 days at the boys ranch. Oh, okay. And so when I was there, my mom had got me out on a, on a temporary release thing to, because it was like uh, Thanksgiving. And so to go hang out with my family and be with them on Thanksgiving, um, I was allowed to leave. When I was there, I had gone on the phone and called a girl that I was dating before I went. And I was like, Hey, do you want to hang out and let's meet up and we'll take, I'll take the Bart and I'll meet you. And so basically I was going to run and I did and hung out with her for four days, ended up catching a, uh, what was it? An escape charge. So I added another year onto what I was facing and ended up getting out of that. I turned myself in, ended up getting out of that. Um, and one more time I got in trouble because I, I, I think I got a dirty or I was doing something that I wasn't supposed to be doing. Got in trouble. They gave me an option to go to uh, nine months in, in juvenile hall or six months in a rehab. And so, I mean, obviously, I was like, well, six months, and there's girls at the rehab, right? It's co-ed. And so I chose that. And little did I know that in a rehab or a therapeutic community, it doesn't go by, by time. It goes by progress. So hmm. that six months turned into 16 months that I ended up there. And so this whole time, all the way up to here, I've, I'd been learning how to manipulate really well. And, you know, from getting the people to beat somebody up for me, that was my first inkling of, oh, I have a little bit of power. I know how to move pieces and manipulate people and get them to do the things that I need them to do. Um, women, same thing. I was learning how to manipulate women from a really young age as well. I mean, I was raised by women, but, you know, switching schools and going from, you know, being the new kid at school all the time, I always got tons of attention from the females. And so, you know, I would learn how to kind of use them to get what I needed out of them. Why were you getting so much attention from the females? I guess I was a good looking kid. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. That's just, you know, I, that's what I noticed when I was, when I was younger. Okay. And so it just continued when, when I felt like I had this, this like, I don't know if it was a gift or, or, you know, just this, this thing about me and I was using it to my advantage. Um, and so, you know, that went on for a long time, including into, let's see, I would say, I got out of that rehab after 16 months, went to my brothers who, which I didn't really know was turning into my sister now. So he was trans. Oh, and wow. Yeah, that was kind of strange. Um, I went to move with him and his girlfriend. Uh, he was dressing like a woman every day and he was saying it was for a part in a movie because he was an actor. Mm. Actually, I guess I should be saying she now. Um, she's an actor, right? Or an actress. With a girlfriend? So he's still like girls? 
Yeah, it's okay. a, it was a, it was a strange it was a strange situation all the way around. No, I've met people like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was different for me um, because this was somebody that I looked up to. I'd played ball with. I'd go and you know we'd go mm. out on trips and we'd do things, and so it was. It was just different, right? It was it was. I just didn't know how to take it. And so at one point we ended up getting in a fight and I told her I was going to kill her. And, you know, I got in some trouble previously to that. Um, got in trouble as an adult now with the law. I had uh, got a car. My mom co-signed for it. Um, I was able to go hang out and do a bunch of stuff. I picked up some guys that I was hanging out with. Um, we stopped somewhere. I stay in the car. They go and beat somebody up with steel toe boots and kicking somebody. We get pulled over as we're leaving. I'm the adult because I'm 18 and they're 17, and I catch the charge. Um, so what why is, were they beating people up? I don't know. They were. I have no idea. To this day, I have no idea why they beat that person up. I was just hanging out, and you know, I didn't have anybody to hang out with, and I was mm. in a you know place, a newer place. And you were smoking meth every day? No, no. Oh, so the meth it it was like 18 years of addiction, but on and off. So sometimes I would be doing meth, sometimes I wouldn't. And this was a period where I'd gotten out of that rehab. And so for about two and a half years, I'd stopped using everything. And so when I'd gotten in trouble uh, with the law, when I was 18, I was uh, uh, drinking. So I'd started drinking again. And so that kind of like was, you know, why I was not uh, making good decisions, I Mm -hmm. guess you would say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, yeah, anyways, ended up leaving there, going back to my mom's. Uh, then I went moved to Sacramento with my buddy, and our neighbors downstairs uh, did crank. So after two and a half years of not doing it, bam, here we go again. What was it like the first time you tried meth? What made you want to try it? All of my friends um, that I knew growing up, they were all older than me, and they were doing it, and they wouldn't let me do it. And so every time we would go and hang out, they would disappear into a room, lock the door, and they'd be either smoking it or or doing lines, and they would never let me in because I was the youngest. And so I don't know if they didn't want me to be responsible for letting me try it or whatever the reason was. But from that point on, it's like when somebody tells you you can't have something, now you want it, right? And so I knew that a lady down the street from me – the reason why I know that is because my dad ended up marrying her sister when she divorced my mom. And I knew that she had, uh, she was like a stoner, right? And so I knew that I might be able to find it there. And she was about 15 years older than me. So I'm, let's say I'm 15 and she's got to be at least 30, 33. And I go and I start hanging out down there. And sure enough, she lets me, ha- she lets me try it hmm. for the first time. Wow. And what it was like was, It was like nothing that I'd ever done before, right? It just it. What I what I didn't realize about it um, is that, and looking back on it after I got out of prison and all the other things that I did, is that I was undiagnosed ADHD, and so it really allowed me when I would get high, it would allow me to super focus on things, projects, um, you know, anything that I was trying to do. It was almost like when Bradley Cooper. And Limitless would take that pill. You remember that? Yeah. It was almost like that, except with without all the mm-hmm. all that. But it just it really focused me. And so, but at fifteen, what were you focusing on at fifteen? 
just doing doing anything that I could to get out of doing what I was supposed to be doing, like uh-huh. going to school, yeah, doing other stuff. Um, I don't know. It just growing weed, you know, just every little project that I had when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It just I, I was super focused on. Yeah, and it just. I mean, it wasn't as as prevalent as when I got older, because the things that I got focused on, you know, started escalating. Okay, you know, so you know, let's just say, uh, I think I'm about 19 now, and I'm on the run again, doing doing drugs. Uh, meet up with somebody, stop. I stopped doing the the crank, but then I start selling coke because hmm. I meet this guy, and you know, we I meet him in a club. And I got him out of some trouble because I had an entourage of people with me and uh, we're hanging out and he got in some funk with somebody and I got my people to kind of assist him. And from that point on, me and this dude became like best friends. Like, you know, you ever, you ever have one, I guess you would call it like a bromance. Yeah. (laughs) Like one of those guys that you just click with and, and like when you meet them, you guys just are just inseparable. You're on the phone all the time. You're talking all the time. You're just hanging out. Yeah, for sure. So that was what it was like with this dude. And he was a Coke dealer. He sold GHB, sold ecstasy, sold all that stuff. So, I mean, that's what nice. I started doing. Okay. So I started selling drugs for this dude. And uh, that's kind of where I got my start into, you know, selling more quantities and doing bigger things. And everything that I was selling at the time, I would be addicted to. So, like, You're I was high on your own supply. Basically. I was a horrible drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, the only thing that, that Did you make can, a lot of money at least? No, I made enough money to 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 get by and to pay the bills and to party all the time. Okay. And it was really just a facade, you know. Um the only thing that kept me from getting beat up is that my biggest clientele was in the strip clubs. And so I had a lot of a lot of strippers that were hanging out at the house. They would, you know, friends, you know, I wasn't banging all of them. What but, were the strippers doing? What kind of drugs are they like? They like Coke, they like GHB, and they like ecstasy. Okay. Yeah, so, and that's why I wouldn't get beat up, because if I owed a drug dealer money, or one of my friends money, or him money, he was like, well, all right, because they'd all, all come out and hang out, you know, because the girls would be around, and they didn't want to blow that, right? Right. So, I had a little bit of an edge there, but yeah, I, I wasn't a very good drug dealer. Hmm. I was a good drug doer. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it just the whole story just continues and continues and continues and continues. You know, um, if we want to fast forward a little bit to when I have my first daughter, um, I get I get a stripper pregnant, um, which is my first daughter's mother. At how old? How old were you when that happened? I was probably about twenty-two. Okay. So I think it was about she was born in two thousand. Mm. I'm forty-seven. So yeah, I'm gonna say it's probably like mid twenties. And so I get in some funk with somebody and it was going to be one of these things where the next time we see each other, it, one of us wasn't going to walk away and it probably was going to be me because up to this point, like I'm a bigger dude, but nobody ever has really challenged me. And so I usually get away with kind of, you know, flashing a little bit and people wouldn't mess with me. Well, this dude was completely different, and it was like, all right, well, I know that if I don't leave town, I'm probably going to die, you know, just because of the, this dude's really crazy. 
And I... He was crazy enough to murder you? Yeah. Yeah. And so I didn't want to stick around. Did you know he'd murdered people before? Well, I knew that he was crazy enough and tried. Okay. And I had, like, we had got into it, and he had came up to me uh, driving. And why, and why did you guys initially get into it? Uh, we were doing, uh, he was another another meth addict, right? Yeah. And we were working on a job together, and it, just, it was a really, a really weird story. But um, we got into it. We were working on a job together as painters, right? He, I'd got him a job as a at the painting company that I was working <laughs> at. <laughs> Love painters. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're always smoking crack. <laughs> doing the, they're, they're all about the uppers. Yeah, they're all about something. Mm -hmm. Every one of them that I've ever met has either been on some sort of drug, an alcoholic, or, oh, yeah. or something. Oh, yeah. And so this dude was like really bottom of the barrel. And he had almost killed somebody before. And we got into it on the job site. And when he was driving away... He had said something to me, and I hit him as he was going through the car, as he was going, uh, driving by. And he didn't stop, but I had left, and he came to my house maybe an hour and a half later, had a gun on him, and was, like, trying to get into the house. And I was like, oh, man. So, basically, he, like, scared the shit out of me. Mm. And I was like, well, look, you're pregnant. Uh, I don't have a job anymore. Uh, let's move to Vegas because there's tons of strip clubs and you can get a job anywhere, which means I don't have to get a job anywhere. <laughs> I don't have to get a job. You can. Mm -hmm. And so we moved there and, um, yeah, I mean, just kind of like, that was just my pattern. Like I would use people, people weren't, um, they were assets. They were things that I would see as what can I get out of you? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And when so I, you, but you just, that was like a reaction that you just wanted to get out of where you were. You didn't really, did you have any kind of plan when you got to Vegas? Did you know what you wanted to do? No. I just you wanted just, to get out of town. You just wanted to get high? Well, no, I wasn't really getting high when I, when I left there. Mm. So, I mean, there's period, like I said, there's periods of time when I would get high and, there, and then there's periods I would stop. And so usually when things got, were getting bad or, or, you know, I was doing stuff, um, like partying too much, not coming home. Um, and doing all this stuff and, 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 um, kind of putting my own situation in jeopardy, like, all right, well, my girlfriend might kick me out or if I keep doing this. So I would tow the line just enough to get her to, all right, well, I'll believe you now. I see that you're trying. And, you know, I would then at some point I would fall back around and do the same thing over again. Does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> so it's just a long line of this. And when I went to Vegas, uh, I was doing well. Uh, we had our daughter, but I'd let my friend move up from Sacramento. And well, he, actually I found out that he was living there already. And he was with another stripper that it's a whole nother story, but ended up moving him into my house. Uh, cause he wanted to get away from her. Me and him start hanging out. And just didn't really work out there because my, my girlfriend was like, you know, me and him are partying all the time. And she's pregnant, about to have the kid. And I'm nowhere to be found most of the time, off doing whatever. I mean, even to the point when I had my daughter, you remember Johnny Depp in, that, in Blow? Mm. And how he was in the delivery room, but he wasn't really there? Well, I was like that on GHB when my daughter was born. Didn't he overdose on Coke when he was in there? Mm -hmm. Well, I was on GHB when I was in there. And so nodding out, just could barely stand up. Luckily, the neighbor uh, that, that was that took her to the hospital 
was there because he's ended up being the one that cut the umbilical cord. No way. Yeah, because I couldn't do it. Um, so, I mean, I'm surprised he even let me in the room, to be honest with you. That's and, wild. Yeah. And so, I mean, just another example of, you know, all I care about is what I want and not really the things that matter in life. Um, just because I, look, I was a latchkey kid from the, you know, in the third grade. So, I mean, I never really had any supervision, never had consequences, kind of, you know, lived my life the way that I wanted to all the way up to this point, you know, using people along the way, mm-hmm. um, having, you know, uh, just craziness, man. <laughs> yeah. So what happened after your daughter was born? what did you do? Did anything change? Did anything click? Not really. Um, I think we were, I was starting to get more aggressive in the relationship, like being more abusive, um, verbally, uh, mentally, emotionally. And like, I was never really a physically abusive guy, but I would do everything short of hitting you because I knew I didn't want to go to jail. But if I wanted you to, you to bend to my will or bend you to the way that I need you to be, then I would start becoming more aggressive and you know until you submitted Mm -hmm. and i got more like that and she had had enough of it and was basically like all right well that's it we're done and the friend had already moved out and he got a two-bedroom apartment because he knew that this was going to happen at some point right he's like i know you're going to need a place to stay so i'm just going to get a two-bedroom apartment and so i ended up moving there and while uh me and my ex were trying to, or my uh, my first daughter's mom were trying to work things out. Well, she was paying all the bills, right? Because she mm-hmm. was stripping. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I was working on and off, but I mean, I really, my whole thing I always tried to do was get out of working. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think Boziak said it the best. Um, anything to get out of having a regular job. Right. Didn't matter what we were doing. You know, if I could, if I could finagle a way to, to not have to go to work and get by and be able to do whatever I wanted that worked for me. And so she had, uh, they were going to go back to California, uh, for Christmas. She want, she had a pathfinder and she asked me if I could take her to the, and drop her off at the airport in it. She didn't want to pay for parking, which she probably should have after what happened. Mm. <laughs> but anyways, she, uh, I drop her off. I end up going to the rum jungle on uh, Christmas Eve by myself. The rum jungle. Yeah, that's, I think it's a club. Uh, okay. Maybe at the Luxor or one of the one of the other ones. I can't remember the names of those places. Um, so I went there, was doing some, some more GHB. Uh, when I left, the last thing I remember is turning off Flamingo, going south towards Boulder Highway. And the next thing that happened is I hit a light pole. So I... Basically, I was driving blacked out, and I hit this light pole. And any further to the left, I would have went straight into. Like, if I went any further to the left or the right, I would have went straight into mm-hmm. a liquor store. Wow. What is GHB like? I've never, I've never tried it. Um, it's hard to explain. It's almost like it's almost like when you first do it, it's it's sort of like drinking. Like maybe you've drank two beers, you take one one capful. Mm-hmm. What I believe it was for to begin with was for guys that were taking steroids and bodybuilders. They would take that as a supplement as well because your body naturally produces it. Hmm. And it burns fat while you're sleeping. Really? Yeah. So what what could you compare it to? 
I couldn't compare it to anything. It's not like any other drug. No, it's is just, it an up or downer? With the, I mean, what the how do you feel? So it starts out as a downer, and like the more you do it, so I built up a tolerance to it because I would do it all the time, all the day, all day long. Right. And so for me, it it turned into an upper to a certain degree. So I would mm. take a cap in the morning on an empty stomach, and you know, an hour and a half later, I'm like wired, you know, vacuuming the floors and you know doing whatever. And so it gives you a little bit of energy, but then when you go past a certain point, it it knocks you out. And so that's why it was one of the date rape drugs, because when you would give it to somebody, if you give them more than, let's say, a cap, let's say you gave them two caps or you threw it in their drink or something, that would knock them out. Oh, God damn. Yeah. Did you ever so, do that? No. I had people that, that tried to do it that were around me to other people. I caught somebody doing it. And ended up kicking him out of the house. But, um, yeah, it was like those people gave it a bad name because, I mean, it's not to me, it wasn't that bad. You know, if you just use it in the right way, I didn't I never used anything in the right way. You know, I abused everything that I touched mm. from people to drugs to anything that felt good. I overindulged in. Mm -hmm. So. What ended up happening from there is, and this is just kind of how bad I was, and I did this more than once. When I was in, in California before I moved to Vegas, there was a point in time when I remember blacking out driving and missed my exit, woke up 10 exits down the road. <laughs> Had no idea how I got there. So, I mean, I'm having like risky behavior all the time. And what I came to find out later um, through just thinking about things and like gee, why, you're connecting dots and everything else like to my past and why am I doing the things that I'm doing, I really believe that I was trying to kill myself. You know, we, I'd mentioned to you before, I'd had three overdoses up to this point. You know, so I OD'd on, on ecstasy and a bunch of other stuff once. Uh, I overdosed on some, some meth by taking too much of it. What happens when you overdose on those drugs? So in this particular instance, um, which is the one that I can actually remember the most, we were all partying on like a, uh, on Halloween. I started out doing some Coke and drinking the night progressed, did some more Coke, uh, did some GHB. Uh, then I did a, a hit of ecstasy. And then when we really got to the, it up. Oh, yeah, dude. when, uh, I got to the party or to the after party, um, a bottle of tequila went around. I took a couple slugs of that and then went to the bathroom and somebody gave me a, uh, uh, like a, a gel pill, right? It's like a, uh, like a pill with powdered, uh, ecstasy in it, something called black licorice. Anyways, the girl that I was hanging out with had said, well, you know what? You should do it as a suppository because it hits you harder. So if you stuck it up your ass, yeah. Jesus Christ. And that's the last thing I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. About five minutes later, lights were out. And from what I heard from everybody that was left there when I woke up the next morning is that I was foaming at the mouth and probably should have been, you know, taken to the hospital at that point. But they just stuck me in a room and put me to sleep. And like, dude, I'm lucky I didn't. I woke up. What was the drug again? Uh, it was called black licorice. Black licorice. Yeah. And it was like some Pow sort of, It was powdered uh, ecstasy. Powdered ecstasy. Okay. Yeah. So MDMA was powdered mm, and. Um, fuck. 
you would you would cap it up in in, in gel caps. Brutal, dude. Yeah, and immediately when I woke up, I should have been pissed, right? When they told me the story. Yeah. Instead, I'm like, all right, well, who's got a cap? <laughs> Let, GHB. Yeah, let's do some more. Let's keep going. So, I mean, just craziness like that, man. And how old were you then? I was probably in my mid twenties. You know, fuck. Or early, early to mid twenties. So, the story when I wrecked that car. All right. Your girlfriend or your baby mama's Pathfinder? Yep. So immediately, nothing happens to me. I pop out of it. I don't know how. Um, there's a 7-Eleven across the street. I get out of the car. I, I walk across the street to the 7-Eleven. I go buy a Gatorade. <laughs> the, 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 clerk, the clerk is looking at me like she's just seen a ghost. She's just like, I just, I just, I just, I just, saw, I just saw you wreck that car. Yeah. Like, dude, you're walking like nothing happened. I get the Gatorade. I go back to the car. Guess what I do? Hmm. Another cap. Blackout again. When I wake up, I'm standing down the street uh, in front of a a menu for a drive-thru that's not open. Just nodding back and forth like this. I come to. I'm like, oh, my God, where am I at? Where am I at? Get my bearings. Look around the corner. They're loading up the uh, Pathfinder on a flatbed. I run over there really quick. I'm like, hey, 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 wait, that's my, that's my car. Go in, grab the GHB, take another cap, blackout again, and the next time I wake up, I'm in the in front of the porno rack at the liquor store I almost ran into. They've called the police by now because I'm standing there nodding back and forth, and they come in. Um, I, I come to, and they lead me, they lead me into an ambulance that's waiting for me. And they think that what's happened is I'm having brain, like I have a brain tra- uh, trauma because of the accident. Mm-hmm. So this is just like the effects of, of being, yeah. you know, right. They can't smell anything because GHB is undetectable. And so they, and I just go along with them. Yeah. yeah okay. Whatever. Go in. Uh, they take me to uh, the emergency room check in and walk out and I get a $90 ticket for the telephone pole or wow. light pole. <laughs> wow. That's it. Oh, but, but Where was your, where'd you, what'd you do with your GHB? Uh, I was in the, it was in the, was in the car. Pole. Yeah. Oh, they don't know anything about it. You want to take it with you? How am I going to take it with me? It blacked out and it was already gone with the flatbed. Yeah. But you went back in there to get another cap right before they put it in the flatbed. Remember? Yeah. But I took the cap. Oh yeah. That's a good point. I don't know where it went. It yeah. must no. It must have went. It stayed in the car. Okay, I so you just it. left it in the car. Yeah, said, fuck it. I don't want it. Well, it's not, I don't want it. Yeah, <laughs> just they were gonna take it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, that's a good question. <laughs> you not, would think that you're like, oh wow, my car's going away. I'm gonna want more GHB in a couple minutes. Maybe I should just take the whole bottle. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I didn't. Um. So yeah, it. Uh, what ended up happening from there is she had my rights terminated. Um, from, for, you know, because I, it's cost her like 18 grand. It wasn't paid for. She let the insurance lapse. Oh, wow. And so that was the end of that. So any kind of reconciliation or any sort of like, you know, we're working shit out. Mm -hmm. Not no more. So she had my rights. Uh, she had me petitioned to the courts to take my rights as a parent away from my daughter. Okay. And it took about six months for that process to happen and for me to be served. And when I got served, I was in jail for a DUI. Hmm. 
So I was hanging out in another strip club called Cheetahs in Vegas. Been there. I like that. I like that. Love that strip club. Yeah. Well, I was drinking a whole bunch and thought I was okay to drive. And when I left, blacked out again. Um, from the police report that I read, they said that when they rolled up on the side of me that I was literally asleep with my head like this <laughs> and, and still driving. And so they hit, the, they hit the sirens, and they said, I looked over and waved at them, and I pulled over because, I mean, what am I going to do? There's no, I can't go anywhere. Right. <laughs> um, when they pulled me out, I could barely stand up. And so what happened next was I guess they said that I tried to headbutt the officer, but I couldn't stand up. So my head kept going back like this. And so they beat the shit out of me right on the side of the road there. And when I got, uh, they knocked me out. And when I came back to, I was in front of the, the booking uh, and they were getting ready to pull me out. What do you, you keep saying came back to, does that mean like coming? Like, like I got knocked, they knocked up. me out. They literally knocked me out. They beat, uh-huh. they beat me up so bad that I, okay. Like I knocked out. <laughs> okay. Um, so came back to means like you became conscious again. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no worries. And so um, I was pissed. I knew something had happened, right? Like, I felt like I was violated. Uh, I knew that I didn't wreck my vehicle because I saw it perfectly there, what I remember. And when they brought me into the booking, um, I was, like, irate, man. I was taking off my shoes, throwing it at the the booking people. Mm -hmm. And I think I had my hand right here uh, handcuffed. No, actually, they didn't even have me handcuffed because I was pulling off my stuff. And I was throwing my stuff. An officer went by, and I tried to hit him. And they, like, four of them jumped on me. And we were in, like, a portable unit. So Mm. it wasn't, like, a concrete floor. It had some give to it. But they slammed me, and I landed on my head. And the next time I woke up again, I was in the emergency room making sure that they didn't, you know, do any serious damage to to my skull. Wow. Still talking shit. A lot of brain damage you had up to that point. Yeah. Well, that's, head trauma. Yeah. That's what I didn't realize too. After talking to a bunch of people about my story and some other people that had some TBIs and uh, traumatic brain injuries. And I had one when I was a kid too. Oh really? Uh, yeah. So when I was a kid, I, I, I lived on a steep hill and I made a, a ramp right to jump. And I was the bike that I was, I had was uh, one of the ones that didn't have freewheel. So the pedals kept going no matter what. Yeah. And so I jumped this thing, and the pedals keep going, and I just, boom. A fixed gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And hit my head, end up in the emergency room there. So that was oh. the first one. How old were you? I was probably about seven or eight. Fuck. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of brain trauma. I uh, got knocked out a couple of times boxing uh, as a kid. Had, you know, some Samoan friends, and I don't know if you've ever met Samoans, but. I know a few. Yeah, they're huge. And so I was, you know, play boxing, got knocked out a couple of times. Isn't that. The Rock Samoan? I think he is. Is he? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he is. Yeah, he's one of those. He's an islander of some sort. You know, we used to say in prison when we see seen He's from Hawaii. Yeah. All they got to do is stand next to the weight pile and they grow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're just huge, man. Yeah. So where are we at now? Uh, brain trauma. You, uh, they smashed your head oh, on yeah, the floor yeah, of that yeah. portable uh, cop station. Yeah, and so when I wake up, I'm talking shit still, pissed, you know, that all this stuff is happening. I'm still kind of drunk, 
and the cop that's sitting there, which I don't blame him for what he did, because I was just being fun. I was just being a, a yeah an asshole. Uh, he come, he walks up to me. I'm I'm just you mother da, 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 this this and that. He takes his he takes his hand, just goes whap, it hits me hella hard, right in the throat, right in the throat as I'm talking, and I'm like fuck <laughs> you. That's amazing. Yeah, that's fucked up. So yeah, I mean that's. That's just kind of life, man. I mean, mm. that's what I was doing. And, you know, this, I'm still not in prison yet. Still haven't been raided. Um, you know, I, I do a geographical and I move down to Florida after I get out of jail for that. You know, go and do the DUI stuff that I need to do. Um, take a job. I got, I got served the papers, you know, to get my rights terminated. And I kind of abandoned my daughter. Mm. I was like, she's better off without me. I'm going to get out of paying child support. So, you know, all right, later. See ya. Tried to act like it didn't bother me. Uh, when I moved to Phoenix uh, to take a job down there, I stayed drunk the whole time I was there. Blew that opportunity off. Came back to Vegas. Knew I moved in with some friends. But they were getting ready to move back to California. So, like, I knew that I, didn't, I was running out of money, didn't have a job, um, needed to make a move. And I was like, dude, where do I, what can I do? What can I do to make money? What do I, where can I go? And I'm like, strip clubs. I can go be a bouncer at a strip club. I used to do it before. So that's exactly what I did. I went and got hired as a strip club. Got a girl to want to hang out and uh, went and hung out with her one time. And when I showed up to her door, she opened it. Or she said to come in. I came in, and she's smoking a bowl of meth. And I hadn't been doing it for about a year and a half to two years, right? I was, I was, you know, I was drinking and doing all the other things, but mm -hmm. I hadn't touched, you know, meth again. Went, knew I shouldn't have, knew, like, it was crazy, man. It was, like, really surreal because I knew that I saw her doing it, and then in my head I'm thinking, walk away, walk away. Don't, don't go, don't go, don't go. You, you know, what's going to happen. And as I'm saying that to myself, I'm walking right to her. I take it and I take a hit and mm. that's it. Um, from that point on, uh, I start really selling drugs. Um, I start, uh, getting guys that slam dope to like steal shit for me. So basically I'm getting them to, I'm moving a lot more drugs now. I'm hooked up with some person that's, uh, you know, um, giving me about an ounce or two at a time to get rid of. Ounce of what? Uh, meth. Okay. So crystal. Okay. And so that's going all right. I'm, I'm doing it for about a year. In that process, I'm figuring out how to do all kinds of stuff because I'm not sleeping very much. You know, maybe every, you know, staying awake for three days, um, figuring things out. Did you ever, you never cooked it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. No. If I, if I would have known somebody that could teach me how, I probably would have. Have you ever watched Breaking Bad? Mm-hmm. I watched the whole series, well, at least the first six six seasons uh, on a on a four-day weekend. Oh, really? Yeah, the whole thing. Were you on meth when you were watching it? No. Oh, okay. That would have been, been a fucking trip if you were. Yeah, no, I felt like it after I finished watching it because I literally had to stay up damn near 24 hours, 48 hours to, to watch all of them. Is um, it pretty accurate? Would you would you say? I I but, would but with like the lifestyle, kind of yeah, or the business part of it. Yeah, 
For, uh, well, I, I can't tell you about the business part of it as being a successful drug dealer because I was never a successful drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> Not even when I was doing the stuff that I was doing, even mm. as I had the enterprise. You know, I was. You would have been uh, two of Jesse's degenerate friends. Probably. That was like where you were? Yeah, I, okay. I would I would have been Jesse. Oh, you would have been Jesse, but not cooking stuff, not right. doing any of the other things, right? Okay. So what I would what I always referred to myself was as the king of the dipshits, mm. because I was the one that always had, like I would hang out with the the guys that were slamming dope, because I'm not that bad, right? As long as I'm not slamming dope, I'm better than you, even though I'm an addict too, mm-hmm. right? And slamming it is mainlining it, yeah, yeah, okay, injecting it. Um, and so that's what I would always think of, right? Like, well, I'm better than you because I'm not doing that. You're just smoking it. I'm just smoking it or I'm just doing a line or, you know, mm. I'm, I'm not slamming. What's it. the best way to, to take meth? Uh, to not take it. No, but if you are, <laughs> I mean, if you, what's the most effective way? Like what's, uh, the optimal. Different. It's different. Um, I mean, there would be like the one time that I, I OD'd, um, on it, it was probably the, it, it, it felt the best. But it probably was the closest that you can get to slamming it without slamming it. So what I would do is I would smoke it out of this thing. They call it a quag, right? So it was like a bong for, for meth, and it would run through the water. Mm. And I'd run ounces through there and, and you know, take it and dump the water out and then put it in the freezer for maybe a rainy day or if I, you know, ran out or something. And so one day I like did. Like meth bong water? Yeah. And so one you day, you made popsicles out of it. No, oh, it was just in there. So I take, I took a a, a couple scoops of um, ice slush, whatever. Yeah. it was like maybe about this much, and I drank it, and it was way too much, like a meth slurpee. Yeah, 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 dude, it was horrible. Wow. I mean, it felt really great until it didn't. <laughs> Literally, like my my. Uh, all my pores started coming out, like started beating with sweat Ooh. and I'm just sitting there and all of a sudden I'm just like shaking like this from the inside out. Whoa. And I literally, I felt like I was going to, I was going to die. And, uh, it, t- it lasted for about, I don't know, 30 minutes like that. And I couldn't move. Um, just profusely sweating out. And, uh, are you afraid you're going to like die or have a heart fuck attack? Yeah, I was afraid. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And, but, I was the only one there. So there was nobody, nobody there with me. And so, I mean, it was, I just had to ride it out. And luckily I, it, I did, but yeah, that was, that was horrible. Who, what was the guy doing in Breaking Bad? I think his name was Tucker. He was like out front in the front yard, digging holes with a shovel the whole time. Remember? He was like, lived, lived at his dad's house and Breaking Bad. And one of the characters, one of Jesse's friends, he was always out, out front digging holes with a shovel. Tucker! <laughs> I don't remember, remember that? that part. No. Oh, okay. I think I want to say that was meth too, but they were the dude was locked in there for like weeks at a time, just in one room. Yeah, I remember meth. Yeah, I remember that he had two of the the two of his friends that, you know, always were trying to get him to do do know, bad shit. Do yeah. bad shit or, or make dumb decisions and um but I don't remember that part. Hmm. Um but it doesn't surprise me. And that's that was the thing. So like so if you wanted the best way besides mainlining it is to just straight up drink it drink water from a bong. I I would say if you're going to do it like it's it's completely different. The best way obviously is mainlining it. Yeah. Um 
you know, cause that hits you straight up. And, you know, a lot of the, the guys that like I was selling to that would do it. I mean, they would do it right in front of me. It was really hard to watch, especially when they're sitting there digging cause they can't, get, they can't get a vein. Oh my God. Yeah. It's pretty gross, man. And finally they, they, they would hit it and you know, the look on their face once they did it was like, huh, that looks like it feels really good. Jeez. Uh, except for that part, right? Yeah. That, that part, I could never do it. And that's probably why I never did slam dope is because I just couldn't get past the needle part. Mm-hmm. I don't like needles. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm not a fan of needles. Yeah, that's uh, bad, bad stuff. I'd be down to try the Slurpee, though. Eh, I don't know. I think you'd be better off to. I'm down to try anything once. Yeah, that's not, that's not a good one to try. But, you know, teach their own. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I mean. Where did we end up living off? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> but oh yeah, you met the girl. You met the girl, and then uh, she oh, yeah. the stripper, and she was smoking it, and then you started smoking it, and then you started selling it by mm-hmm. the ounce. Mm-hmm. And how I got her to let me move in is because we I'd met her doing that right, and we worked at the same club. Um, <clears throat> I went and moved to the shittiest roach infested flea bag weekly rental right and i invited her over because my goal was was to get her to see how bad i had it Mm. that way she'd say hey come come move with me that way i'm not manipulating you you wanted to make her feel sorry for you yeah so she would say come live with me and i wasn't i wasn't it wasn't my idea it was your idea so you can't say that i'm trying to use you right part of that manipulation yeah for sure and that's exactly what happened she she went over there. She saw the roaches running around, and she's like, "Dude, you you gotta you gotta get out of here. Come move and live with me." And I'm like, oh, "Are you sure? Are you sure you want to do that?" <laughs> Knowing that that was exactly what the plan was to begin with. Wow. So I did a lot of that. So you ended up dating this chick. Mm-hmm. I was with her for a long time. Uh, probably I was with her until I until I went to prison, okay. or at least until I got arrested. How did you end up going to prison? So. Like I said, I was doing all of this stuff, had these uh, guys going, stealing these things for me, uh, providing them with the truck and all of the money and all the, you know, the gas and everything to go to smash and grabs at businesses and then also burglaries in, in homes. And they would come back, they would bring me everything. I'd fence it off and pay them in drugs. And this went on for a little while. The guy that I was dealing with that I didn't know at the time he got busted and turned me turned a confidential informant onto me, and I sold to that guy five times, and I was sold him meth. Yeah, sold him five ounces five different times uh, to an undercover cop. That the guy that I was dealing with for a year put onto me, mm. and so what ends up happening there is that I didn't realize that I was under surveillance for a while. Um, they're watching me. They're, they're seeing me getting in and out of my car as I'm, you know, going to make a run or doing whatever. I always carried a gun with me. So I would take it out of my back. I'd put it in my, under the seat, do the same thing when I get out. So they know that I'm armed, right? When they were breaking into houses for me, they were pulling, you know, firearms and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I had about five or six of those and filed, you know, the serial numbers were gone off of them. And at one point I just felt like, like it was over, right? Like 
trouble was around the corner. Like my run was, was up. I just had this feeling that something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. I got rid of all the guns. Um, just, I, I don't know why I did that, but I just, I felt like I needed to. So I got rid of all of them except for one, uh, about a week later. Um, I'm, it's about three o'clock in the morning. I have tons of electronic shit, right? Like all the stuff that they've stolen that I wasn't able to fence. Like I've got stacks of, <laughs> of like, you know, decks and, and amps and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, I have in the living room, there's a, uh, like I got like 36 fucking speakers hooked up in the surround sound, right? Uh, Bose system, all kinds of stuff. Uh, it's about three o'clock in the morning. This is all in that stripper's house? Yeah. Okay. So it's like a townhouse. Okay. So one, two bedrooms. One of the bedrooms I have, I uh, put a deadbolt on. Um, is it a pretty it, nice house? Strippers make pretty good money? Uh, some in of Vegas? Them, some of them do. Depends. Depends on, on how broken they are. Okay, yeah. Because <laughs> the broken ones usually have drug problems. Um, not always, but a good portion of them do. There are some you that are- you any strippers that make $100,000 a year? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Ones that put themselves through college, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're they're the hustlers that you know. My, I know that my daughter's mom at some point she was making a thousand a night. So really, yeah. Do you still talk to her? No, not at all. Mm-mm. Not at all. Mm. So, where we at? Uh, electronics stacked up. You were living in Radio Shack and in a townhouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it, man. So yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of electronics and stuff in there. There's a huge, uh, loud stereo. It's three o'clock in the morning. I, it's on, uh, it's pretty loud. My girlfriend and her roommate are asleep in, in our room. I'm in the next room working on a hundred dollar bill. Cause I'm counterfeiting at this point, uh, washing $1 bills. So they basically taking $1 bills, stripping all the ink off of them and imprinting old 100, the old hundred on top of it. How do you do that? Uh, very meticulously. Okay. So, so basically you would strip all of the ink off of the, the original dollar bill. How do you, how do you strip the ink off a dollar bill? It was a certain degreaser that you used. Okay. I can't remember what the name of it is. Uh-huh. But I remember that that's what we were doing. It a was degreaser. Soaking it. Yeah. Was soaking soak it, it in, in it. Okay. And then just, just wash all the ink off of it, dry it flat. Right, flat on a piece of uh, so basically, I'd squeegee it to like a flat piece of glass, let mm-hmm. it dry on there, so it's it's very flat. I tape it to a uh, really uh, a piece of paper, run it through a printer, and it would print the old hundred on it. And so the old hundred didn't have the barcode on it, didn't have the stripe in there, the little the little strip that it has that people look at, mm. didn't have the hologram either. It was before that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was doing. And they were passing. And you were just printing them out on a regular printer? Mm-hmm. Just a regular everyday printer? An ink printer. Right, like an inkjet or something. Yeah. Wow. So it didn't, it didn't have, it what didn't did have the ridges. It didn't have the ridges like you can, scra- you can scratch on them like in, in the lapel. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. How there's those ridges that you can feel? Mm-hmm. It didn't have that. But, I mean, most people didn't know that. Because when they would go and they would, they would mark it, it's 100 Right. What did these things look like after you stripped all, after you degreased all the ink off of them? They just look like blank white. They look like the blank sort of, uh, you know, with the under, uh, what, what wasn't green. It was just that. And then all of the red and blue, uh, wow. fibers. That's wild. Yeah. 
And how many of these things were, how many of these $1 bills were you turning into $100 bills? I did probably, I would say, close to about five or 6000 Okay. I mean, because it was a meticulous process. I mean, it wasn't fast. It, it wasn't, uh, and I would never be one of the ones to go and, and bust them, right? Mm-hmm. I would have the guys that were working for me go and, and <laughs> try and pass them. And what, oh, okay. So the guys that you were, that were working for you, what were they? What were they buying with it? Drugs? No, they would just go and buy like because uh, you didn't want to. You didn't want to do it to the drug dealers. No, why not? Well, they'd fuck you up. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so what I would do is I'd send them out to like liquor stores or other places, and they'd spend like maybe forty bucks and get sixty back. Um, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Uh, you would look for places that had teenagers as cashiers because. They're not going to know. They're not mm-hmm. going to pay attention. They're not going to care. Um, so, I mean, it was a, metic- a meticulous process. Mm. And I would do other stuff like uh, all of the computer towers that were stolen. Um, I would swap those hard drives out, and I would go and buy with cash at Walmart the Seagate 80 gigs. Those were just started to come out. I'd buy those, take those out clean the uh the other hard drive strip the hard drive like basically wipe it and replace that used one in the new one hmm. peel use a, a a blow dryer to peel the the label off of it re uh shrink wrap it and put the label back on wow and then return it get my cash back it, so Jeez. it's a lot of work a lot of fucking work for little little return right mm-hmm. but that's meth like what else am i doing i can't sleep Right. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. You're just burning the candle at both ends. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, that, that's just the kind of stuff that, that was going on at that point in time. Um, like I said, now we get to the point where... Uh, and this is what you got arrested for, eventually. Yeah, well, I got, arre- I got arrested for the, the five controlled buys. Okay. That's what caused them... Oh, yeah, them- yeah, yeah. The guy, yeah you, the guy flipped on you, put yep. an undercover dude. Yeah, and so that's what caused them to do the initial uh, raid. And so on that raid that day, that evening or that morning, um, I hear a bunch of like, boom, 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 boom. And my door is shut. I got a friend over here. I'm working on a $100 bill. And I just like, the, the, the TV's on hella loud, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it is. I don't hear any like, get on the ground or anything. Because they hear, I think they focused all of the the force into the living room because they heard that's where they thought I was right um there was double pane glass windows because I lived next to Nellis Air Force Base I tinted the inside of these windows so one of the flashbangs that they shot in made it through the first pane and then bounced back and blew up on them oh fuck (laughs) which then in turn caused the the police dog that they had the drug sniffing dog to bite the officer because he got scared and just bit the officer. Oh, shit. So they're pissed when they get in to begin with, right? They're like, oh, dude, this guy, we're going to fuck this dude up. Mm-hmm. I know that's what they're thinking. I tell my friend to get out down the ground. I open the door. And remember, I, I told you the hallway at the end of it to the right, the door is over that way. And in the front of this door is a huge big screen projection TV, which is like the six feet tall ones that are about 3,000 pounds, the real old ones. Mm-hmm. The door doesn't open up all the way. It catches on like the edge of the, uh, the big screen. Okay. So literally they got their, their SWAT shields up. And when I come around the corner, I have this little Derringer in my, in my hand. 
I look and I see that there's it's a SWAT team, and I ditch the gun behind the 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 TV, and I dive on the ground, put my hands behind my head. If they would have seen me, they would have killed me with that gun. So, and the reason why I didn't get caught with that gun is when I'm they hogtied me on the ground, they zip tied me, I'm mouthing off to them, and uh, they picked me up. And two of them, and they ram my head into the TV. Ugh. And it pushes it up over the gun. And so they miss it. Oh, my God. That that would have been an extra five years because it, it had a serial number filed off of it. They never found the drugs because um, I kept everything in a TV, TV VCR combo in the corner that was hanging off the ceiling. And so in where the VCR slot was, was loaded with cash and, and, and dope. And they never found any of that? The drug sniffing dog can't sniff up there. Oh, shit. So he missed it. Oh, smart. Did you do that on purpose? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I was pre... Uh, I, I did it on purpose, but no. Lucky break. Yeah, it was lucky. Um, so I ended up going... I took the fall for everybody. I could prove that... Now, this was planned. I could prove that... They didn't have anything to do with it because I kept a uh, deadbolt on this door right here where I was doing all of my computer stuff and were like maybe 14 grams of meth were that they found. Um, and then I had another back uh, room that I had another computer in where I was washing all the bills. And mm. so I had all the counterfeit money in there. Maybe you can explain this to me. I had I bought a house a couple of years ago and I renovated it. And there was I know there was a bunch of uh, drug addicts living there because when I'm <clears throat> in the sink in the uh, garage, there was just a bunch of needles. There were syringes there. There's syringes up in the attic we found. And, the, you know, they were in some of the cabinets. They were everywhere. And on one of the bedrooms, there was dead bolts on the outside. On the outside of the bedroom. Like mm-hmm. they were locking somebody in the bedroom. Well, the reason why I did it was because I was the only one that had the keys. So I knew that if I ever got raided, that... If I'm the only one that had keys and access to these rooms, everybody else could claim ignorance. Mm. Like, I didn't know what he was doing. Okay, you know, I didn't have it. I didn't have any access to that. I don't have keys to that. Right. And they literally went and checked everybody's keys to make sure that nobody had access to it. Okay. And then so I took the fall for everything. Okay. I mean, it was all my all mine anyways. I mean, what's my girlfriend gonna do? Right. Right. You know, I'm gonna do what I want. So I ended up going, uh, getting booked into to uh, Clark County Detention Center, and they released me three days later on my own recognizance. So they went through all of that to just turn around and let me out three days later hmm. because I didn't have a criminal history. At that point, I was like, you know what? Fuck this. Catch me if you can. I'm going on the run. And I did. And so left that spot, had enough money and liquidated, sold all the, all the drugs that I needed to, um, to get the money to move to a new spot, reinforced that whole place with, uh, I put a, uh, one of those, you know, those front doors that, that are metal that you attach to you to in front of your front door mm. so you can open it up. Yeah. So I put one of those, uh, at the entrance, um, to the, so it's kind of, it's kind of weird how I did it, but. It was just another layer that they'd have to get through before they get to the next door, before they can get to me. Don't some people put, like, burglar bars over their doors? Yeah. Like, actual bars, and they, they can lock them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't use one of those. I just, yeah. I just put that. That, uh, that was the cheapest way that I could do it. Mm. Put cameras up everywhere. The place where I was living at, I, 
I was on the top floor and I could see up this way and I can see down that way. So anybody that was coming, I could see him coming. You could only get in two ways. Okay. And so that way I would have time the next time that it was going to happen uh, to either get rid of the drugs or, you know, maybe jump out a window or whatever it is. Um, that lasted for about, I'd say, three months I was on the run. Um, in this process, I was starting to figure out how to use credit card numbers and make IDs and checks. And I was selling to this one girl who worked at a tour agency and was getting me stacks of information, like papers, that had customers' information, their name, their address, their credit card number, their CCV, mm. their date of birth, um, and every, everything except for their social security number. But that wasn't hard to find once I had all this other information. You know, I can just do a background check on you and cross-reference some things, and you know, I was able to find their social security numbers. Mm. Um, I had so much information that I was trying to figure out how to do Western Union wire transfers for like a thought. You can do $999 at that point in time. That was around two, I would say 2003, 2004. Figured it out, burned a bunch of information, um, decided to go on the road, and I rented a car, uh, was able to do identity theft and get a person's uh i stole someone's identity got a credit card issued in my name or in their name to me got around all of the different stuff that they ask you um you know you know how they do when you apply sometimes you have to give them information they'll ask you questions about their family members or or this or that which is all information that you can find in a background check um because that's what they use <laughs> the credit card companies to find the questions to answer anyway mm. to ask anyways so I was able to get that. I got a, I rented a, a Durango. I put the whole operation in the back of the Durango. My girlfriend was driving at the time and I had six different cell phones that I was using and I was switching the, the prefixes of the phone numbers to the prefixes of the people that I was using their credit card. So what, Western Union was doing is so when I would when I would online I would do all this do all this stuff to do a wire transfer I give them that 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 uh, phone number so they could contact me and I would act as if it was like my work as we were on the road they would call to verify that I did this and my girlfriend would answer and say oh this is so and so business uh, how can I help you and they'd say hey, can I speak to so and so yeah hold on one second they'd give the phone to me or if it was a woman who I was using, I would answer as the business and then hand her the phone as she was driving and say, yes, I, I approve this. And there's $999 waiting for me. I would print out the ID that I needed uh, for whoever it was that I was having the money sent to in the car. And I did this all the way from, uh, what was it? from Vegas to Amarillo, Texas. And I planned out all the Western union stops on the way. Got to Amarillo, ran out of meth, and couldn't find any more, and crashed for three days. Even went to the strip clubs and with, with my chick. Couldn't find any more. Wow. And so we were both forced to have to, like, crash for three days. Um, went back, uh, did the same thing at different places on the way back. And so by the time we got there, it was about 40 grand in cash we had. 
um, our roommate at the time, which is the same girl that was with us when um, we got raided, mm-hmm. and she was the one that was sleeping with my girlfriend in the bed. Not sleeping with her, but well, you know they were doing that too. But um, uh, she kept calling, and she this, this chick never really cared about anything that we were doing, right? But all of a sudden, she kept calling, wanting to know when we were going to be back. And so I was like, dude, this is no, there's something wrong here. She never does, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna go and stash the money before we go back to the pad. So I stashed the cash, went to the house. Um, we get there. Her friend Steve is there and this other dude. And what ended up happening is, is Steve was a hangaround for the Hells Angels. And he's like one of these, you know, dudes that's trying to, you know, it's a hangaround. He's trying to get into the club, right? So he tells them that we're coming back with a bunch of drugs and all kinds of stuff, trying to make his stripes with this dude. We get there. Uh, I don't think anything of it. We start getting high because I hadn't been high in like three days now, three, four days. Start getting high. The dude pulls out a gun, uh, puts it on his lap, and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Put that away. He's like, you don't understand. Get on the ground. Uh, You're being taxed. And I'm like, what? All right. He separates me and my girlfriend. Our stories match. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, dude, I got to get this dude out of of my house. How can I fucking get this guy out of the house? And I'm like, hey, you know what, dude? You're kind of stupid for what you're doing. I'm like, if come over here. Come look at what I'm really doing. And I started showing him some of the stuff that I was working on. And I said, if you really want to make some money, you'll not do what you're doing right now and join me and we can partner up and I'll show you how to make some real money. And he bought it. And so I sent him off with a Cannondale fucking mountain bike and some fireworks I got in, uh, 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 where's that place called? New Mexico on the way back. And, uh, once I got rid of him, uh, the only thing that was on my mind is I was going to kill this dude now. And I went and bought a shotgun. Like two days later, I worked, I made the ID and everything else I needed to. Uh, bought the shotgun at a big five. Uh, waited the time. Where I screwed up was, is I was cheating on my girlfriend this whole time. There was this girl that I wanted to sleep with, and we went and rented a hotel room. And I think my my she knew what I was doing. But since I was supplying all the drugs and I was, you know what I mean, the money and everything else, she was just kind of putting up with it. Plus, she was sleeping with my with the girl, the roommate girl at the time, too, and uh, really wasn't sweating it. So she ends up, she bought, she pays for, I give her the cash for the hotel room. She puts a hotel room in her name, the girl that I'm trying to sleep with. And that first night, everything was good. Uh, the next day I didn't get enough. I want more. Um, and I put it in my name. Well, not my name, but in the identity that I'm using in the credit card. Mm. What I didn't realize is that, that when you rent, when you try to rent a weekly, they send your information to Metro to make sure you're not a, a, a fugitive, right? Well, the person's identity that I stole was a black dude. So when it came, when it went to them, it was my picture, but when it popped up was a black dude. Mm. And so I go and pick up the shotgun and I, I get the room. They say it's not going to be ready for like three hours. It didn't put two and two together to realize that, well, it's 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. Why isn't a room ready? They said, come back in three hours. So I go pick up the gun, um, have it in the car or in a Durango. And when I get there, they're waiting for me. 
So divine intervention? I don't know. You tell me. That saved me from a murder. Mm. And, and how long did you get sentenced to? I did. They were trying to hem me up for uh, fift- two to 15 years to begin with. I caught the uh, public defender working with the, with the, uh, the prosecutor because I knew that from... Your public defender? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Working with the prosecutor. Yeah. So this is what I did. I knew that there was a backlog um, for them to test the drugs. And so in order for them to convict you in a trial, the drugs have to be tested, the purity and all that other stuff. Mm. I didn't waive my right to a speedy trial. I said, I said no, I want to I have a trial within 60 days. Because mm-hmm. I, I was banking on the fact that I would beat the, beat the time. And right when, about a week before I was supposed to go to trial, my my public defender goes, oh, well, you know, we're going to have to push this off for two weeks. I'm going on vacation and all this other stuff. And I protested it in the middle of the courtroom. I'm like, dude, I don't agree to this. I said 60 days. It's supposed to be 60 days. And so right there it was kind of like, hmm, something seems off. When he was supposed to be on vacation, he called me from his office. And I'm like, dude, I thought you were supposed to be on vacation. Why did you push off my date? And he's like, oh, well, uh, and I'm like, oh, dude, you guys are trying to fucking string me up. And so that's at the point where I call my mom and I'm like, hey, man, I'm going to, they're trying to give me, I didn't mention the two years. I said, they're trying to give me 15 years. And so I could get her to come down and get an attorney for me. Right. And that's what happened. She got an attorney for me. She came down and I ended up getting 15 to 60 months in state prison. But when I got busted, how close were you with your mom up to this point? Um, not, not really. I mean, it, it got to a point where she had actually sent the cops and reported me as a missing person. Cause I just dropped off the face of the earth. I didn't contact anybody. Uh, I was just off in my, my own world. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I would be using, I would, I would never like want to be around anybody that I knew mm-hmm. didn't want to be around family. You know, my dad's really kind of out of the picture. Um, and it, my dad's a cop too. So my whole dad's side of the family are law enforcement. So, I mean, that didn't go really well. Yeah. Like during this whole time, like throughout your twenties, when you're running through Vegas and, and doing all this stuff, like, were you calling your mom every month, every week? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking. I mean, she's, we've always been close, Okay, you know, but she's always been the person that's bailed me out. Right. Like up to this point, I mean, dude, I've ran the, the truck through the house, you know, her truck through the house mm. in, in our, you know, that I grew up in. Caused a bunch of damage there. Um, she sent me through an outward bound program that was like fifteen grand. Uh, the lawyer. I mean, I've I've cost this woman probably in the upwards of about fifty to sixty grand. So she came. Where was she living when she came down to uh, help she, you out? She was living in California. Okay, she came down there and she hired a lawyer for you. Yep. And so that they gave me fifteen to sixty months, and so I paroled out in eighteen months. But what happened and how I got the federal charges was that the guy that processed my place when I got raided mm-hmm. showed up at the uh, when I got arrested at the hotel room. And so because it was a fraud and forgery, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so he showed up and he is like, ah, oh, I've been waiting for you to pop up. He's like, you went on the run and thought you were going to be able to get away with this, huh? Are you going to try to you know, become somebody else or whatever it was? Mm. He was like, so I'm going to tell you what. I'll, do, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. If you take me to your house, because I remember processing your last place, and you had a shitload of stuff. I know you probably have that much or not even more 
at your new place or wherever it is that you're doing your business now. Yeah. And he's all, if you take me there and you give me everything, I won't charge you with any of this. And I'm like, well, that's a great deal. Let's go, right? Because all I want to do is go to sleep. I've been up for, you know, a couple days now, and, and, like, I was falling asleep in the 120-degree back of the cop car, right? Literally, I, I just went to sleep. Um, when he got there, I was like, yeah, that, that, that's a deal. Let's go, man. Let's just get this over with. I know I'm not going to leave. I'm, I'm done, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I didn't realize he had a Secret Service guy doing a ride-along with him, and the Secret Service guy picked up the gun charges, and there was a box in the back of that uh, SUV that had 30 credit card numbers that I didn't know. So I got charged with uh, access, uh, uh, false information for a firearm acquisition and then also 30 counts of access device fraud which is having access to credit cards in our ears. Mm. So I ended up getting indicted for that. Uh, it was, was uh, fighting my case there. Um, they released me back. Once I got indicted there, uh, two charges, 18 months running concurrent. They released me back to state custody, went and did my time in high desert, and then moved to Indian Springs uh, in, in, in Nevada. Then I ended up going to paroling out to do my federal time in 2006 i got out and that was a, that was that was really different how much time were you in total about three years okay and then but i mean if you want to count all the times like was it like life, was it like low security medium security high security like it was, high? Medium. it was medium it was medium yeah okay. i've never been to i mean i started out in a high at high desert and the worst thing that i'd ever seen in prison, like, I don't have any of those crazy stories where you hear people getting raped or, or stabbed or any of that stuff. The worst thing I saw was a guy get uh, doused in the face with a hot pot full of baby oil. Mm. You know, like all across his face, his, his bubbling up and all this Jesus other stuff. Jesus Christ. Um, but none of the other stuff. Okay. I was lucky. You yeah. Know? I, I, I didn't have to go and do all that. I didn't have any co-defendants in any of my stuff. I mean, it was all me. And, uh, you know, they had me dead to rights anyways. Right, right. Um, so I get out in 2006, uh, move back to my mom's, um, go to halfway house. I'm doing okay. Um, I stay drunk probably for the first six months that I get out, uh, just decompressing from being in, I mean, it's, it's pretty traumatic when you go to prison, man. Um, I've been jumped a couple of times while I was there. Um, you know, got into it with, uh, with some South siders and, uh, ended up getting jumped there. Was trying to was gonna run my whole bid by myself, but then once that happened, I realized that you can't really just. There's no way that you can't click up with people because mm -hmm. you need protection, you know, for whatever. Uh, maybe there is a way to do it. I didn't do it that way, mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, I mean, it just it was kind of it, it was a it was sort of a shock when I got out uh, because the everything's segregated when you're in there. Yeah, I mean, even when you're in a medium. It's not as bad as the, the politics aren't as bad as when you're in a USP, but it's still there. Like you can't eat after a black person. You can't eat after a different race. You can't like grab somebody's, like take a drink off of somebody's drink. They don't really like you playing, you know, games and stuff with them as well. They, they just, they like you to be segregated mm -hmm. and you start taking on the, when you say they, who are you talking about? Your car. Like okay. I was running with the whites, so the whites weren't going to, you know, didn't want you doing all that stuff. Right. And like, I'm not that kind of person. Right. I was a chameleon in high school. I, I hung out with everybody, but I had to start taking on that sort of mentality while I was there. 
So, you know, not liking black people, not liking Mexicans, not liking anything that was other than white. And I started falling into that. And when I got out, it was hard to decompress from that, you know, that kind of attitude and, and trying to change that mindset. And so I struggled with it for a little while and, um, I started doing okay. Uh, I got into my union. I did some other jobs. Uh, was an apprentice in my union Then 2008 hit and the financial crisis, which, you know, everybody got laid off of work, especially if you're in construction, mm -hmm. had a lot of time on my hands and ended up, uh, I'd gotten married in the process in between this for all the wrong reasons. Um, Another she a stripper? No. Oh. She was somebody that was in recovery. I met her in a uh, AA meeting. Oh, okay. And so I went to AA because I was doing, you know, drinking daily up to like a fifth of uh, alcohol a day. And I had stopped one one day. I was just like, dude, you got to quit. Mm -hmm. And I just quit cold turkey, went through the whole, locked myself in my room, went through the DTs, the shakes, the sweats, all that stuff. Got it out of my system, went to AA, ended up meeting her. And thinking to myself, well, dude, I went, I went to prison. I didn't have anybody because the chick that I took the case for stole all my shit, my trucks, all my stuff, uh, sold it all, and I didn't get anything. I didn't get no money on my books or nothing. My mom even went to the door to try to, to you know, get some of my shit back and was unsuccessful. So the last thing I was going to have do that if I ever went back to jail, that I'm not going to be stuck with nobody, you know, to write to me or cause I mean, that sucks when you're the, the one thing that guys like or count on is getting mail. Right. Mm. And I never got hardly any mail. And so I remember that feeling, you know, sitting there waiting at, you know, am I going to get something and not. And so I'm like, well, if I get married to somebody, if I ever go away, then I'll have somebody that can write to me, mm. <laughs> which is a stupid reason to get married. Right. Yeah. The attitude is usually the opposite from everyone else I've talked to. Mm -hmm. They say when they, when they go to prison, the last thing you want to do is have to deal with not being around your loved one or not being around your girlfriend or your spouse, or whatever, like being, being separated from them is like the most difficult part because you got to go through the, the depression, the jealousy, like what are they doing out there? Are they getting with anybody else? Yeah. I, I, well, I didn't experience it. Mine was the opposite. Right. So the person who I thought was supposed to be there wasn't. And the thing that I didn't like to do is be on the phone. So the phone, they call it a stress box. Right. Because you're you're talking to people, you're you're hearing what's going on. They got mm -hmm. people in the background. Like I told my mom, that's that's the person who had my back always. And I would tell her, I'm like, look, I'll call you once a week, but like, don't bother coming to visit me. Don't you know do any of that stuff because you're just going to make it harder for me to be here. Yep. Um, you know, and so that's kind of how I did mine. Maybe I thought about it in the wrong way. I don't know. Uh, but that's kind of what I tied it to you know, getting married to this person for not the right reasons. And so, but wait, you said you were, you got married to her. So you would have someone to be able to connect to if you ever went back to prison. Mm -hmm. But when you were in prison before that, you didn't want to have any communication with your mom at all because you didn't want any communication with somebody outside of prison. So you, you're basically saying you didn't want those letters. You didn't want those phone calls. If I went back, my mom wasn't going to be the one that was going to, take care of me right because she's not gonna do it again mm -hmm. you failed again this is mm. the last time i'm helping you okay so i'm securing okay you see what i'm saying yeah I'm, now i see what you're saying i'm securing somebody that could actually take care of you and, and yeah. bail you out next time that you got that you got fucked up exactly okay so like i said all the wrong reasons mm. and more of that manipulation 
right? Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't it wasn't so much the emotional part of it. Mm-mm. Okay. It was the financial, mm-hmm. the you know, making sure that I got money and, and all that other stuff. And so when the financial crisis hit and I lost my job, um, I had tons of time on my hands. She was working and I started making my way back to the people that I knew that were doing, doing meth. And so started again. AWOLD from my marriage. Cause I knew, so I knew that like I was, I had a bunch of money. I was getting unemployment and I was going back to work periodically uh, cause I'm in the union. So they, you know, they'll, you get laid off, you're on a list. If your name comes up and you take a job, so there were some jobs that were going on, you know, every once in a while, like, you know, one, two week, three week, four week projects. Mm. And so I was taking them, but I was also getting unemployment still. I didn't, I was double dipping. So I had a bunch of money. What I did was I knew that I want, I wasn't done. I want, there was some stuff out there that I knew that I, I could do, which was carding, which was what Boziak did. I knew that was possible and I wanted to do it, but I knew how to do the credit card stuff, not the credit card, but the the check fraud. And so I started buying with the money that I was getting from unemployment. I was buying printers. I was buying check stocks uh, or the check stock paper that you use to write, Mm -hmm. make checks. I was doing all this stuff, uh, preparing. And when I got everything I needed, I AWOLed from my marriage and just disappeared. Went to a place called Martinez. I was hanging out with a bunch of CD Underlife people and was hanging paper, which is making checks on IDs mm. and having them cash all of them. Mm. Um, hooked up with my buddy um, that from Sacramento from before, and I asked him, I'm like, hey, man, this is kind of what I want to do. I, I know that you can buy credit card information online. I don't know where you can get it at, but I know it's possible. I know there's, there's things out there that I want to do, but I don't know how to do them. Do you know somebody that's doing it? Because he knew a lot of people are doing a lot of different things. Found me somebody. And this was the second dude that I clicked with like that. Another bromance. So this dude taught me everything. He taught me how to get the cards from Russia using the dark web. Taught me how to... Uh, make your own. Um, so we started out with the blank, uh, the blank plastic, right, with the mag stripe, mm-hmm. and he had all of these different um, things that he had bought that you could print different, like bank, bank logos and like just banks from ever anywhere you you wanted, like from. I can't remember what they were. Um, some of them are for like from Brazil, like Bank of Brazil, or all these different things. So you yeah. could just print them on there. What were you doing with them? Pressing cards out. Uh, were, were you selling them to somebody? What were you doing? No, we were, you were spending money, spending, buying yeah, shit? Yeah, we were buying stuff. Okay. So around that time is when Best Buy started doing the purchase online and pickup in store. And so what we were doing is, and the only thing that they were requiring that you give them to prove you were who you were was the last four digits of the uh, credit card number. Mm-hmm. So basically, you, know, you could just press out the card, not have any intract information on there, and just show them the card. And you walk away with okay. the items. So we were buying MacBook Pros. And so at that time, they were $2,200, bucks, And they never go on sale. And so when we would put them on Craigslist, we could sell them for about two grand, And they were going like this. And so we were making a bunch of money that way. We were getting some cards that had PIN numbers on them to, like, bank accounts. 
So we would go and hit all, like, Hate Street had about 25 different uh, ATMs on that street alone. And so I just would literally go down from ATM to ATM until I ran that card out and then hit another card and, you know, just got a shitload of cash that way. Wow. Um, and that's what we were doing for a while. We, we had two different offices. We had one office um, where we were getting all the information and we had all of our stuff to, you know, get information and everything stored there. We had another location where we were pressing out everything. And so basically using the embosser, the mm-hmm. tipper, and, you know, right. finishing it. Mm-hmm. And we did it that way just in case one place went down, we still had the other place. Okay. And so, I mean, it was pretty organized. Most of it wasn't me. It was the guy that taught me how to do all of it. And we disbanded that probably after about three months. And I had gotten up to this point. I mean, I'm on federal supervised release while I'm doing all this. Still towing the line there. I haven't had to do too many uh, UAs yet. I ended up getting a dirty, though, and I got sentenced to a 90-day. Getting day, a what? A dirty, D, a dirty UA, like a piss dirty. Oh, okay. For my probation officer. Oh, okay. I end up getting a. Uh, for smoking uh, meth? Yeah. Okay. I get a violation. They make me do a 90-day drug treatment center. My PO was a woman. And I went in there and started crying and was like, oh, I got, I got a problem. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right? I need, I need help. And so she's like, all right, well, we'll send you to a treatment center. I went to that treatment center. I was a 90-day men's, men's uh, treatment center. And probably within a month of being there, my buddy, I contacted him and I said, hey, man, I, I, I need you to do me a favor. I'm going to say I'm going to come work for you right? because he had a business front. And, you know, so I can get out of here every day and they'll allow me to have my truck. So they bought it and every day I was leaving and I was going to do doing fucking crime and staying high the whole time. I carried uh, synthetic urine on me in case I had to come back and they asked me to drop mm-hmm. a UA. Um, I screwed up, though, nine days before I was supposed to, to graduate from this. So I almost did it right nine days before I was supposed to graduate from this thing. Uh, I end up, um, did some GHB and, uh, nodded out and blacked out again, driving, uh, didn't wreck anything, but just, I was supposed to be back at like six or seven and it was like midnight had to call in and say, Hey man, uh, <laughs> uh, I made up some stupid ass story and they tested me as soon as I got there. They knew I was dirty, but mm-hmm. I used the synthetic urine and piss clean. Uh, the very next day, my uh, they said they kicked me out. My PO, uh, I had to call her up, and I'm like, "Well, dude, I, uh, I, I didn't piss dirty. Like they could, they can't <laughs> prove that." And she's like, "Dude, you didn't successfully complete it, so you're gonna go back. Um, I'm gonna send you to another place. Uh, I'm gonna violate you again, and you're going to." Um, you're going to go to 90 days in a uh, facility, not not like a, a contract facility for the feds. Okay. So basically like a, a county jail. Okay. And so when that was going to happen, it was like all these things, man, just started came piling down on me. And my buddy took off. He went to go live with his girlfriend. I had to come running back to my wife. Like, oh, you know, I, I messed up again. Uh, it'll, you know, things are going to be different. I promise, uh, you know, all this stuff. And um, 
you know, I'm, I'm kind of being sort of, you know, physically, not physically, but mentally, emotionally, and uh, abusive in that relationship as well. Uh, she doesn't buy it. And the point when I decide where I'm going to change everything was on the side of a highway. I was on a high-speed chase with her. We run into traffic. I'm chasing her down because she's not buying my bullshit. And I'm trying to convince her that, you know, or bend her to my will like I did everybody else. She's in her car and you're in another car chasing her? Yeah, chasing her down. We hit traffic. She pulls over. I pull over. And I'm like trying to convince her on the side of the road there's a bunch of cars going by all of a sudden oh my god oh dude it was a mess man were you on meth well yeah yeah <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> so what ends up happening man is i fucking fall apart i'm bawling on my knees just fucking crying uncontrollably and there's people honking going by and like the most surreal shit happened. I'm like, I feel like I'm floating above myself, looking at myself going dude, you're just a pathetic fuck. You know, look at you. You're sitting here crying like a little bitch because your life is the way that it is. Mm. And what are you going to do? And from that point on, um, like I said, I knew I was going to a, a, uh, County, County jail that I'd <clears> never <throat> been to. Um, I didn't want to be kicking drugs while I went there. And so I stopped doing it um, before I went in for about a, like about a month, six weeks before. Stopped doing the meth, stopped smoking cigarettes, went there, got out uh, after the 90 days. My, my ex-wife now, uh, well, I mean, she's still my wife then, but she takes me in, but she knows that she doesn't, she doesn't want to have nothing to do with me. She just does it out of pity. Um, but I, I don't go back to it. So I start going to AA. I start playing adult slow pitch softball, get away from the group that I was with, that I was hanging with. Right. Managed to not fuck up my, my chance in the union. So I'm still have my apprenticeship that I can go back to Mm. start working, um, not doing drugs, not doing any of that stuff. Playing softball was kind of a trip. Um, I didn't like the league I was playing in. So I decided to start my own and, I did everything to start it, did all the stuff, got the insurances, the teams, all this stuff that I did together. It took a lot of planning. It took a lot of, you know, thinking about how to execute it. You know, I I had a goal and I achieved it. And what happened was I realized that that was the way that you're supposed to build self-esteem and confidence is by having a goal, achieving it, getting that good feeling from it. And then leveling up and going, well, if I can do that, then let me try this. And if I can do this, let me try that. Mm. And I just kept leveling up, leveling up, got into the rowing team on my union, uh, did that for like five years, became a sergeant at arms uh, for my union. So I really got involved in in other things that kept me away from, you know, the people and the places and all the other shit. Mm -hmm. Um, Became a, uh, a, what? a trustee for my union for two years. Then I was on the executive board for two years in 2019. I ran for a business agent position and lost. Hmm. Um, the thing that I didn't realize and that I do now, and that this is really what I advocate for is I'm still a toxic person. None of the things that, that I'd done and all of the like inline things subconsciously that that I learned and all the habits and the bad habits and the bad behaviors and everything that I learned up to this point, those were all still there. 
They didn't go anywhere. They're just, just because I'm not on the drugs doesn't mean that those things went anywhere. Have you ever heard of the dry drunk? No, it's the dry drunk. So it's the guy that, that stops drinking but still an asshole? Still an abusive person? Still, you know, the same guy that has the problem but it's just not using the substances to, you know, subdue it? Okay. And so I start... Uh, what I start doing then is, is when I'm at work, I start listening to podcasts. And this is the part where I told you about where I started listening to Joe Rogan and I was listening to him for like 10 to 14 hours a day in my earbuds and I'm following him. I'm following people like Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Mac, uh, uh, Lex Friedman, like all these people that have great ideas and you know, their, their philosophies and their perspectives are like, pretty spot on man and i'm like buying into it and little did i know that my mindset started changing as i'm listening to this content all the time i start taking on their ideas and their you know sort of philosophies and you know their thought processes and i decide that i want to start a podcast because joe rogan's always going hey you should start a podcast to everybody that, that he talks to on his podcast right well, I really thought he was talking to me because I thought that we were friends, right? I've been listening to this dude for so long that like, oh man, this is, you know, he's like my buddy. And so I'm like, yeah, I should start a podcast too. And so I did. And what happened after that was pretty amazing. Um, as I'm, the podcast I started, I called it Nowhere to Go But Up. And I wanted to tell stories of other people that were like me that had been through things like myself, bottoms and life struggles and kind of how they got through it. Right. Yeah. And as I'm listening to their stories and I'm relating to where they're at and I'm talking about it, I'm healing at the same time. So it's sort of like therapeutic for me and I'm using the podcast to leverage guests to help me go through some of the things that I'm, I'm struggling with, like from, you know, self-sabotage to anger to you know all the things that are still kind of prevalent in my life the one thing that i missed on this is that while i was playing softball i end up in an opiate addiction so i got hooked on painkillers for seven years jeez but because i got an injury playing softball right yeah and so in my and i told this story earlier today but in my uh medical record it says i'm an addict and for them to get around giving me uh, pain pills, they made me sign something that say that I won't uh, come back and sue them for giving me these pills, right? So I take those. So and, they can keep giving them to you. Yeah. And so I'm taking these, dude, and I'm like, I, I, I turned into a full-blown addict again. I'm buying $500 a month and extra pills. I'm like, you know, everything's revolving around mm -hmm. these pills, but it's not to the point where it's, affecting a whole lot in my life. I'm still able to level up and do the things that I'm doing versus meth that every time I tried to do it. So you're functioning, you're playing softball, you started a podcast mm -hmm. and you're, well, what kind of pills are you taking? Vicodin? Vicodin. And when I, when I finally ended it, it was Percocets, okay. 10s. And so I was doing like 120 a month. Okay. Um, and then, you know, I buy another extra hundred. So sometimes it was 200. It wasn't like full blown. Like some people I've talked to would have done, like they were doing 20 or 30 pills a day. Mm. I was at about 10. And so, but I mean, it was just my whole, 
like everything revolved around these, Mm -hmm. you know, like even from the point where I would, uh, you know, would sort of start running out, take too much, couldn't find any more and would start to withdraw. And, you know, all of that stuff that goes along with it, you know, from trying to wean myself down, it was just a mess. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, that's going on. I'm still doing that. The podcast, I wanted to start that. Uh, oh, yeah, I haven't started your podcast at this point. Well, I skipped a little bit forward. Okay. All right. So before I started the podcast was I knew that if I was going to be, because, you know, part of what I wanted to talk about, I wanted to be transparent about who I was and what I was struggling with, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be as authentic as I could be. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do that if I was still taking pills, right? Right. And so I stopped. And how I stopped was, is I weaned myself off. So I was taking 10 a day. I went to five a day to half of that, to half of that. And until I got to about quarter pill and then I started using edible marijuana to kind of lessen the effects of the withdrawal symptoms. Hmm. And so that worked. Did it? Yeah, it did. And I still do it today. I I use it as a, uh, uh, I microdose THC daily. Really? Mm-hmm. Microdose THC. How much is a microdose? Uh, five milligrams. Okay. And so I you use take it in the morning? Mm-hmm. With my coffee. Jesus Christ. It's not enough to get you high, mm-hmm. but it's enough to- Five milligrams gets me high as fuck. No way. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm a lightweight, man. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've built up a tolerance, so five milligrams doesn't do a whole lot for me. It, it... Ten milligrams and I meet the devil. I see, the, <laughs> I see demons. <laughs> on on edibles? Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super lightweight. Well, th- then you know that that's no fun. No, it's not. So, I mean, that's and that's what I had to learn, too. Yeah. And, like, I, w- I make all my own edibles. And so, like, there'd be some times when uh, I would make chocolate and this piece had a little more than it should. And I'd get to that point where I felt like I was going to die. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh my God, I'm going to, oh my God, yeah. I'm dying, right? That's not fun. It's the worst. But if you can get it to the point where you don't get to that, you're not high, but you're just before that, to me, it, it, it's almost like taking a, like, like what people would take Zoloft for, right? Mm-hmm. It, uh, it helps me to focus a little bit because I am ADHD, and so it calms me down. It makes me focus a little bit. I'm st- I still go off, you know. It, it's not 100%, mm-hmm. but it's a lot better than it was. Mm-hmm. Where are we at? We good? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you know, what ended up happening, and then I had a daughter, too, my daughter that I have now. Another daughter? Another daughter, yeah. And she was, uh, she's almost four. And that's where the change really happened from, from me wanting to become, like, stop being this abusive person. And it was all because of her. Okay. And my ex, uh, me and her were super toxic together. And what ended up happening to change that was we were, I was in a rage and we were fighting about something. My daughter was behind me. I noticed her. I'm still yelling and she's gone. I stop what I'm doing. It just like snaps me out of it. And I go and I look for her and she's in the furthest part of the house curled up in a ball crying shaking scared and how old was she at the time she's probably about two and so the only thing that could go through my head at the time is like i wonder if that was me like 
when my parents were fighting and when I was going through that, I wonder if that was me doing the exact same thing. That was an eye opener. Um, a lot because I didn't want her growing up thinking that this was normal, right? That, oh, well, if she ever ends up in this situation 20 years down the road where she's got somebody who's being abusive to her, and she just goes, well, that's normal. My parents used to do that all the time because mm -hmm. it's not normal. Mm -hmm. People shouldn't be treating other people that way, especially somebody who you claim to love, right? And so it happened one more time, and we were, we were already split up, but we were trying to take her to see Santa together to just kind of like, I don't know, like some sort of normalcy. And we were going at it in the front, and she's in the back seat, and out of nowhere she just goes, stop. She's only two, two, two and a half years old, man. And so that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Um, I started coming out in my podcast and talking about being an abusive person. Um, kind of like, I don't know. I, I wasn't hiding from it anymore. And what I noticed that was happening was, is the more that I talked about it, the less the power it had over me. And the more transparent I was being about it, the more people were reaching out to me going, dude, that's, I deal with that too, mm -hmm. you know? And so I just, I was reaching all kinds of different people, you know, from, from women that were, that was happening to them and, you know, or had happened to them to dudes that were, you know, struggling with that themselves. Yeah. And so at that point it was just like, well, this is going to be my mission now. Have you heard of soft white underbelly? I have. You watch his videos? I've watched a couple of them. Yeah. Th that guy is making some pretty amazing content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, all those people he interviews, all the, the the hookers, the pimps, the drug addicts, the homeless people. The the one common denominator with all those crazy fucked up people is fucked up parents and really bad parenting. Well, I mean the the number one the 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 gateway drug is trauma. All right, and not necessarily for everybody, but at least for my population of people that have been incarcerated and you know gone through something in their childhood, it's trauma. And the number one public safety issue should be untreated trauma because look at, just look at the people that he deals with, right? That's untreated trauma. And it rears its head in all kinds of different ways from unwanted pregnancies to mm -hmm. drug addiction, to domestic abuses, to all of these different things. If that got dealt with, what it should be dealt with is a mental health issue, which it, what it is we would have a whole lot better of a situation instead of using this punitive model. And I, I've heard you talk in some of your shows about, you know, sort of, um, you know, how everything kind of is uh, as far as society right now and how systemic stuff. And, you know, we actually shared a, a uh, guest um, that was on my show. That's been on your show, uh, Patrick Lavelle from the con. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. He's a, uh, it's great, great documentary. Yeah, 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 that dude's super smart. Yeah, I, I, he makes I, a lot of cool stuff. He sure does. I, I think he would be good to talk to uh, Matt Cox. Hmm. I, uh, I think that would be a good uh, introduction for them. Yeah, they're both definitely in, in the same world. They both he, he uh, that guy spent a lot of time studying that whole financial crisis and yeah. and all the banks. What's that movie? What's that famous movie about the? Uh, 
the 2008 financial crisis. Um, oh, about the short, the big short? The big short, yeah. That was a good fucking movie. That was a good movie, but the con covered everything that it left out. Yeah, but the con, I mean, it's a very, it's a, how long is that thing? That How long is the con? It was like a three-hour documentary. No, like that six. One. It was six. And it was multiple episodes, right? Yeah, five. Yeah. I watched all six, I, no, it was five episodes. I watched all five episodes back-to-back, six hours worth. Because mm. you know, I think, it was either five or six, one or two. Because you lived through that time. That, you really relate to a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and then I watched it for another, I watched it two more times because with you got to screen it, you got three viewings of it. Mm-hmm. And so I watched 18 hours of this God thing. damn. Well, because I was trying, because I was going to have him on the show, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the whole reason why they let me screen it so I could bring him on the show. And uh, I, I was looking for inconsistencies. I was looking for something that I could like, you know, pick apart on. And I couldn't. Really? Yeah, I couldn't. There was nothing, man. I mean, he put it in such layman terms to where like, you have no you you could be the dumbest person and mm-hmm. still understand what was going on right and it was just, it was an amazing documentary to me i started plugging that dude's shit and all my and you know just because i was like super stoked mm-hmm. and then i had his other producer on and then another one of their producers on at the oh, same cool. time so yeah it was it was pretty cool that's awesome man and i've hooked him up with uh patrick with another woman that i i had on my show who was a so she got put in prison for three years, and she's a she has a PhD. She's a black woman, and she was calling out the corruptions in Baltimore, Maryland, where they were doing illegal foreclosures in two thousand nine, mm. and they were trying to get her to shut up. She was on the NAACP uh, Baltimore chapter. I mean, this person was like a legit community member in the black community, right? Um, somebody prominent in Maryland asked her to stop saying that there were illegal foreclosures and kind of like, Hey, shut up. Stop saying this. Prominent. Somebody prominent. Yeah. Like who? I don't know. Oh, it's in her book. Okay. She wouldn't tell me because she didn't want to, she wanted, she didn't tell me cause she wanted, didn't want to spoiler spoiler. Yeah. So what ended up happening was is she got wrapped up in an indictment with some people that, uh, she had done business with, but I mean, she was doing uh, credit restoration. So somebody, you know what that is, right? No. Okay. So credit <clears throat> restoration, like let's say you have, you need a 700 credit score. You've only got 600. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in order to get that loan, you need to satisfy some of these debts. And so she would just kind of figure all that stuff out and work it out for you to where you'd be able to do that. Um, and she had her own business doing it. And so there were, I guess the feds found somebody that she was had worked with where her name was in and they wrapped her up in this indictment and she ended up having to do three years in federal prison. So basically they shut her up and she's been to the Supreme court. She's going back again for the second time. She just started a nonprofit. I talked to her yesterday. She started a nonprofit and she's got judge Joe Brown advocating for her nonprofit. So, I mean, she's not some bullshit person, right? And so what happened to her was sort of the backside of what Patrick Lavelle was covering, right? So the big short tells you about the short. He covers, you know, the mechanisms by which they were using the appraisal companies and all these other different things that they own themselves and how Wall Street was incentivizing by packaging up all these uh, mortgage-backed securities, but they were bad securities, bad loans. Um, And so that's what he was covering, and she was – the fall guy 
that they were trying to blame this shit on. Mm. And so I hooked her up with him, and I think that because he's doing a sequel to his to that. Okay. And so she's probably going to have a part in that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did the con have a uh, good response? Did it have a uh, positive response? Did, where did it release that? They released that was like it right on, in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. It was right around, I think you had him on in November. And I had him on probably, I mean, we did you get reached out to somebody? I don't remember. It was so long ago. I do so many of these things. I yeah. can barely remember yeah, anything. I, know. I barely remember some of the guests. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Do, do you feel bad though when you when like somebody asks you about something and you're like, oh fuck, I don't know. Yeah, no, I just feel stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to retain all the stuff I talk about. Yeah, you. How many episodes do you have? Uh, on audio, there's probably 120. Okay, we're around the same. Okay, I just uh, released. I don't one. do that many. Yeah, I just released 128. Wow. And I've got about 50 in the queue. It's a lot of work, huh? Is this all you do? Well, yeah, well, because I was on temporary disability because right. uh, you know, uh, I had some repetitive motion stuff, and mm. I was able to get on right before the lockdown. Oh, cool. And so I've been on for a year. Mm -hmm. I got released back to work on the 29th, went jet skiing uh, on my skis on the 19th, broke my fucking two toes, and was supposed to go back to work on May 1st. And so that's going to get pushed back. But yeah, but the whole time I was doing that, I, uh, you know, I was, I've done a bunch of stuff with the podcast. I was trying to do everything I could to pivot out of it, you know, learned everything on my own, been doing it for about two years, can produce, can edit, can do all of the stuff. And so I've been trying to like move myself into that direction, right. To get out of doing construction because it's not really the one thing that I realized uh, from the pandemic was I was willing to sacrifice the time with my kid to chase this career and being a business agent and all this other stuff. Right. When the pandemic hit and I was able to co-parent with my daughter and have her more time, I realized that I need to be with her. If I'm going to raise her the right way, then I need to be around and not sacrifice that time. Mm -hmm. So now that put me in a different direction. It's like, all right, well now I don't, I'll do this over here if I have to, but I need to try desperately to get out of it. And, you know, whether it's speaking, whether it's book, you know, all the different things that I'm trying to do, like I'm just about ready to turn that corner. Like I could see it. Like I could, Oh, it's, it's just right over there. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's just not there yet. Yeah. It's definitely a maturity thing. I'm the same way. If I'm not doing this, I'm with my, I'm with my son all the time. If I'm not, it's either that or this. It's, that's my life. My life's changed so much since I had a kid. Yeah. But um, how do you like it? How old's your son? It's the best two, two. Yeah, ah, oh, those are that's a good years. These ones right here, yeah, it's are fun. Good years. Yeah, it's definitely fun. You can definitely, uh, you can definitely know, you know, see how you mold them and shape their personalities and you know their values and all that stuff. Like right around this age, their mind is just so fucking plastic. Everything's so new and you know it's wild. Yeah. Well, what happened? Oh, and so one thing that I forgot to mention. So remember the daughter that I gave up on? Yeah. So about two months ago, she reached out to me and wanted to start a relationship and start to get to know me again. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. And, but How old is she now? She's 21. Okay. She lives in Vegas. Um, she was uh, funny. So the story on that one is 
when she turned 18, my grandparents had died uh, prior to that, left her about 20 grand, and she came up uh, with her she mom. Did buy Bitcoin with it? No. Oh, okay. Darn it. <laughs> I hear you talking about Bitcoin all the time. <laughs> but there's some different, I don't know, man. I don't know how I feel about crypto. Yeah. I don't know enough about it. And, like, when people try to talk to me about it, I'm just like, dude, I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> just, just stop. Because yeah, I don't, I don't want to know what I'm missing out on. Mm. Um, so, anyways, her mom, I guess, or her dad stole that, or her stepdad stole that money from her. And so she called me up and was like, hey, man, I don't talk to my mom anymore. And, you know, um, I, I need some help uh, financially. And, you know, I was like kind of, oh, I don't know. It's just kind of weird, right? You know, because I'm always suspect of everything considering the life that I've been through. And um, her mom's pretty shady, too. At least she was when I knew her. Um, but, yeah, we're uh, – she worked it out. You know, I, I've, I've loaned her some money, and she's paid it back. So, I mean, she's – we're feeling each other out. Um, we haven't met each other uh, yet. We're texting right now. Uh, we're not talking on the phone yet either. I'm just kind of letting her do her thing. Like, when you're ready, I'm here. Don't Don't worry about it. Hmm. So it's just, it's kind of it's kind of strange, but it's kind of cool at the same time. But having my daughter really showed me how important that relationship between father and daughter is by going through it with my own, and then realizing what she must have missed by not having me around. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like I'm I'm trying to <laughs> poor kid, uh, like she's having to she's having to to deal with me overcompensating for the mistakes I made with this one, trying not to make them with this one. Right, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, they always say the daughters are the ones that grow up to take care of their dads, not the sons. Mm. That's at least what I've heard. But who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Well, dude, thanks for coming down and doing this. I appreciate you being here, man. Yeah, you traveled thanks. a long way. You had a fa- fascinating fucking story. Well, thank you for letting me tell it, and you know it's uh, a privilege and an honor to be on your show. Yeah. And uh, yeah, dude, I love watching it. I'm a fan. Also, cool, where can everyone find your podcast? Uh, the best way to find it right now is I have a, a website in the works. It's all getting taken care of. But the best way to get a hold of my podcast and anything that I'm doing and to support the show, social media, all that stuff is on my link tree, which is l i n k t r dot e e forward slash nowhere to go but up. And otherwise, just go nowhere to go but up podcast or Sean Dustin on uh, uh, Google, and I'm the first thing that pops up. Sweet, man. Thanks, bro. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, man.